This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Yorgos Lanthimos, director of The Lobster, and you're listening to Adjust Your Tracking. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. That's the cue for a changeover. He flips the projectors, movie keeps right on going, and nobody in the audience has any idea. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, you sound different to me right now. Yeah, dramatic pause in person. <laughs> in person. Here we are, yeah, doing it old school, like back in the origin days of, uh, of AYT. I yeah. guess four years ago? Yeah. We were just talking about a movie you shot four years ago. It was, it's like, yeah, been... four years ago in January. Yeah, and we were doing, is that our anniversary? It yeah. January, it's right, because we did beginning of the year, it was like, a, yeah. or it was the end of the year. We recorded first, first in your bedroom, correct? Didn't go so well. I recorded all loud on my I end. I thought it went great. Well, it it was technically didn't go very well. Exactly. You didn't record so well on your end. I sounded clear. It was it was not but fair. I wasn't up on the mic enough. Yeah, but it was a good conversation, that's true. Yeah. We were, uh, yeah, exactly. It was good. So, you know, you know here we are we're, we're in person you're visiting portland so True. it's good to be in the same room but uh you know we still got we still got movies to talk about yeah we got business to take care that's of. that's right we do um what's on the docket for today well today um we're gonna talk about two movies that like you know i think for the most part kind of overlap in their sort of grimly darkly humorous assessment of humanity mm. either right now or <clears throat> as it was looking in the dystopian days of the 1970s Yes. Both have kind of a literary feel to them. Mm-hmm. One is an actual adaptation from a book mm-hmm. from the 1970s, and one just feels like it has that literary quality to it. Those movies are High Rise and The Lobster. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, I'm, I I, mean, really, these, these are movies. It's nice that these movies could not only come out, I mean, it's com- complete coincidence, but they're coming out the same time. They yeah. were both released, at least uh, limited, and High Rise has been on VOD now for a while. But right. They were both released limited in theaters just this past weekend, the 13th on Friday. But uh, we've not only been anticipating these movies for a long time, we've seen them earlier at festivals. Like, they've played the rounds. They're also from two directors that uh, we've definitely talked about on this episode. Championed. Yeah, championed. And, uh, yeah, two very exciting filmmakers, two very different filmmakers. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of nice when it works out like this where... It's we like the filmmakers. We're excited for the movies. But then you had pointed out last night after coming out of High Rise, you were you're at my theater seeing the movie, and you're like, they do have a lot in common, actually. Yeah. And I don't think we're straining to say that they, no. there is this weird sort of overlapping that happens. There, there's like sequences that in rewatching The Lobster, I was like, oh, they they like echo each other, like literal sequences, kind yeah. of like speak to one another, and they're, <clears throat> I think. You know, if we get into it, like with because High Rise is out here now. It's out it is. In, in where I, you know, usually live in Los Angeles. Mm. It snuck out in theaters like a month before it was slated to to start. That's how you saw it, right? Yeah, it like it, it quietly a- opened at a theater for a week, which I don't understand the motivation for a studio to do that. Yeah, I wonder if that had something to do with uh, maybe this is the changing landscape of 
how they are going to mix this VOD theatrical yeah. distribution. And maybe that's it was like a gift to that theater to get to show it, and then it goes on VOD where it's been for a month now. Yeah, so. it's 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 like weird to think about the motivations for it because it yeah. like wasn't announced, it wasn't publicized. It was just like if you noticed it, you could go and you could see it. And it ran for a week. Week, a full week. That is weird. One time a night. So like that is weird, yeah. Only the true trolls knew about this movie, of which you fall into that category. I think. Maybe. <laughs> well, I, you were there. You made yeah, it. I f- I feel a slight allergy to them, but like I still <laughs> wind up sharing dark rooms with them a lot of the time. There's that line in High Fidelity where he sort of admits he's like talking about the people that come to his store a lot. Yeah. He's like, I'd be more mad, but you know, I kind of am one of them yeah. or something like that. So you just have to resign yourself to I'm that. I'm sick of the sight of this place. <laughs> For all its inconveniences, Lang was satisfied with life in the high-rise, ready to move forward and explore life. How, he had not yet decided. I thought you were empty. I just moved in. You're an excellent specimen. You don't know how things work around here, do you? I'm a fast learner. High Rise, directed by Ben Wheatley, an mm. adaptation uh, of a book by J.G. Ballard, which are you, you're, have you read any J.G. Ballard? Unfortunately, no, but I do think he might be an author, like, I, <laughs> this is going to sound, I, he seems like an author I would like, like, I get the sense I think he into his books, yeah. He's, he's like a little, he's a little heavy handed, and it's, it's difficult to naturalize, like, his ideas are really fascinating, yeah. and if you read his interviews, like, I started... My entry point into him was reading a, a book of interviews with him. Mm. And so, like, he has such striking ideas, and he's such a humanist, but he takes these, like, really, like, frighteningly bleak assessments of humanity, mm. and he's able to sort of, like, eke out some sort of, like... Uh, it, it's like showing us the worst possible outcome in order to sort of, like, strike a chord of, like, humanity in us to wake up and pull us from the nightmare that we seem to be, like, sinking into. Sure. But, like, so these kind of pronouncements he'll make in his interviews, he'll have his characters say these things, Mm -hmm. and they're they're sort of, like, high-minded, like, conceptual, philosophical things, and it just doesn't seem normal for characters that, like, even though it's not in everyday life, because in High Rise, it's definitely a, a heightened environment. No, no pun doubt. intended. No doubt. <laughs> but it's like, it's not in reality. Right. It's in this weird sort of like, it, for one, it like takes place in the kind of retro futurist world of how the 70s assumed the future would look. Right, right. Which is when the book was written. Yeah. So it's, I think it's a really smart, faithful adaptation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that as faithful and as good of an adaptation as it is, it works as a film necessarily. He has all these ideas, and they don't sound natural coming out of characters' mouths. Mm. It was the problem with Crash, kind of. Right, right, the Cronenberg version. Yeah, which they kind of, it's there's a weird overlap, because Cronenberg made a movie called Shivers right, that which takes it, place in a high-rise. Shivers is the one where the, yeah, the the like worm goes up someone's it's like, a, armpit it's or something. It's a parasite that turns them into sex zombies. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of like that. In terms yeah. of low-budget Cronenberg, I well, like it, yeah. And if you watch it sort of close to a viewing of high-rise, you're right, like, yeah. It all takes place in a single high-rise building. Mm. It sort of advertises like the ideal sort of utopian living situation where everything's provided for you. And it satirizes it, too. Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. God, and I only caught up with that a couple years ago for 
for like a feature on the playlist. We were doing a Cronenberg yeah. thing, and that was just one I was like, I'll, I'll watch Shivers. Yeah. But come to think of it, you're right. I, I actually wish I would have seen it closer to Approximation when I saw High Rise. Yeah, they sort of speak to each other, and mm. like the presence of Jeremy Irons in High Rise, who, which having worked with Cronenberg and Dead Ringers. Yeah, yeah. Cronenberg, he just feels like a. He feels like a lifeguard to this experience. He's with bit. us a lot. Yeah. He's with us a lot. He hangs yeah. out in the room. I mean, I, I also feel just to um, get into other, maybe influence, maybe not influences, but things I, filmmakers I thought of while watching High Rise, mm-hmm. because I think Ben Wheatley is one of those directors that is a movie nerd. You hear yeah. him talk and he he's rife with like influences and people he's inspired by. Um, he actually has made me go back and rewatch a lot of Nicholas Rogue stuff again, and it's been mm. like so rewarding because he yeah. when it's either him or Danny Boyle when they talk about Nicholas Rogue, I'm just like, wow, I have to watch more Nicholas Rogue movies. Just yeah. the way they talk about it. But I also feel like, um, and this is going to get into my issues as someone who hasn't read the book because I think it divides us in our opinions of this movie. Is uh, this feels like late era Gilliam to me in a lot of ways? Yeah, and that is problematic to me uh, because I haven't liked any of the late era uh, right. Terry Gilliam. Post what, do you think? Really, and it's something that connects us to our uh, f- our uh, our brother podcast over under movies is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas to That's me. That's the tipping point? It is, it is for me because Gilliam worked with a new DP on that movie and he stuck with that guy ever since. Yeah. And every movie has that very similar extreme, you know, kind of aesthetic. Fish-eyed, yeah. Exactly. It's got a similar aesthetic, but also I would equate High Rise to something like Fear and Loathing and also... Um, it's pretty close. Like It, it really is, they're right? They're both adaptations. They're both messy. They're both like... Same era. Filmed with ideas. Or yeah. they're filled with ideas and like... It's I would of, say they're both brimming over the top with yeah, ideas. Yeah. To the point where you can't really synergize it into a dramatically involving narrative. Like, it was an issue for me, yes. Yeah, both are visually ambitious. Like, mm. this is the most visually ambitious film Ben Wheatley has made. Like, Field in England was, was very, like, bold yeah. and stylistic and psychedelic. Yes. But, like, this is, like, I, I don't think he had a huge budget at all. But he was working with, like, creating a visionary sort of look. Yeah. And, like, the, it, it takes effort to make, like, a retro-futurist movie. Like, it's, yeah. it's sort of, it's probably a studio's nightmare because it's, like, you have to get period-specific stuff while still making a sort of far-fetched, heightened environment that's yeah. the future. It's, like, creating, like, Logan's Run again. Yeah. Know? Right, and I'm sure a lot of whoever the people behind you know funding the movie were probably like, "Do you have to do it in the seventies? Like- I bet there was a relative amount of pressure to just update this in a way that might have yeah like just been cheaper, frankly. Um, but I think what it speaks to is, yeah, this is Ben Wheatley working on a, for him, a much bigger budget right. than his previous four movies are like micro budgeted movies. Yes. And with that came extra runtime to this movie. And I think part of what um now I've seen the movie twice. I saw it at a festival last year, mm-hmm. and really, just to get it out of the way, I did not like the no, movie. you were very grumpy about it. I was it. very grumpy. This was my big disappointment of my time at fe- the Vancouver Festival last year. Um, I Part of it is way overweighted with my expectations. Yeah. I love Ben Wheatley. I, we, I, Kill List, Sightseers are just incredible films. Yeah. Um, I, I really like Down Terrace, his first movie, and Field in England is like maybe a... I don't know. It's it's it works somehow, even though it's just this weird little yeah. object. It's like yeah. It's probably like 
I don't I don't know if it's his most uncomfortable movie to watch, Field but it's England. like yeah. yeah, there's 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 a tense claustrophobia to it mm-hmm. that like is a little difficult to get through considering this kind of like buoyant black comedy tone that Sightseers had. Right. And even the sort of like thrill ride that Kill List was. Yes. Um yeah, like there was something lean about those movies too that yes. with High Rise as padded out as it is, like I I have an entry point to the to the movie in having read the book and sort of acknowledging that it's a very faithful adaptation. Yeah. That the characters aren't as much characters because they're just like ideas sketched out. They're just kind of like mouthpieces for these philosophical tidbits Mm -hmm. that get worked into the script. But even still, like, it doesn't mean that's going to make a good movie. Mm. Like, when people tell me, when I'm like, I don't like Harry Potter. Like, have you read the books? I'm like, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter, exactly. I'm not one to say to you well have you read High Rise because right. like if it doesn't work as a movie which I think a lot of it doesn't a mm-hmm. lot of it sags a lot of it gets like deeply repetitive yeah and like there's because it's not driven by <clears throat> logical motivation the yes. sort of fever the movie exists in because it's about a high rise where like the hierarchy is broken down to, into who lives on what floor mm. what sort of section on the building and then everything starts to decay and go into collapse, and it's about just the sort of breakdown of uh, of like the the sort of idea of capitalism shaping us into conformity, and that at our base we're animalistic mm. nightmares, basically. Right. And so, like, it's interesting. He's played with these. JG Ballard has played with these ideas, like in that in the sort of dystopian trio of Concrete Island Crash. And high rise. Okay. And high did rise. Those all were all they written around the same? Yeah, all in the seventies. Okay. And crash, like if you watch crash back to back with like or read, you know, for that matter, mm. crash back to back with Fight Club, like the two answer each other like mm. pretty incredibly. Nice. Like there's the homoerotic two men sort of figuring mm. each other out and yeah. offering each other the duality of like different sides of in like, the movie the Elias. <laughs> Elias Coteus exactly. and uh, James the James Taylor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I yeah. thought of Fight Club last night upon rewatching High Rise, yeah. the movie, the, and thought of the book Fight Club, but the movie as well. And also, it kind of led me to being like, see, I I, I, I might not be able to articulate exactly what it is, but I guess I just like what Fight Club. I know I like f- what Fight Club does. Well, because I just respond to it more. I well, don't like, even like. All the movies I think we're going to be discussing, and even the ones we're referencing tangentially, like yeah. Fight Club, there's a sense of detachment. There's a dryness mm. to Edward Norton's yeah. narration that's supposed to be humorous, but it's a fine line with like how detachment works. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think the like I thought this viewing of High Rise was a lot funnier than the last time I watched it. Mm. But I think what's largely missing is like the sort of the hum of like the comedy. Yeah. Because the lobster is hilarious. It's so fucking funny, man. There's a yeah. trailer, here's a preview of what we're going to be talking about soon. But like, <laughs> it's so effectively funny. Fight Club, so effectively funny. Definitely. That, that, one, that tone is a little tricky, too, because I didn't think it would, like, it got funnier the more I watched it. Mm. And there are certainly people who can watch it and just be horrified. Sure. But like, um, American Psycho, another adaptation, mm. like mm. that anesthetizes you with this comedy, and then when the horror comes, mm. it's this weird kind of like collision of of feelings where you're like you're like oh, oh no, <laughs> and like I think High Rise needed more of that complexity mm. and to sort of pull you into 
a movie that's not really driven and motivated by characters or right. their motivations. You know, yeah. like because these are sketches and they're ideas of archetypes in society and society breaking down. Like something else needs to lure you in. Yeah. And if you're kept at such a distance for a movie that's this long and this kind of indulgent in ugliness, though it's beautifully shot, it's yes. like it's difficult to sustain. It, it is, and I think um, in a lot of ways, like Wheatley has kind of been building up to a movie like this yeah. for his previous four movies because I see, and it was again on a rewatch last night, seeing High Rise again, I could appreciate more of it. Where like, you know, there's a lot of stuff, Killist in specific, that yeah. like. There, he's a director that almost gleefully dismisses like connective. We talked about connective right. tissue in movies yeah. la- last episode. He he does not care about that. Yeah. So much so that, uh, especially my first time watching Killist, I was just like, "What the fuck is going on? Like, how <laughs> yeah. did we get from point A to point B? Especially by the end, you know, how did yeah. one character get here and there? High Rise is almost like the conclusion of of. Uh, of Kill List over and over again. And yeah. the, the, that repeat, the r- kind of rinse repeat button that keeps getting hit for me in it, it just wore me down. And I think of another movie I'm just going to tangentially reference is uh, Natural Born Killers. It's like the same kind of thing where it's a movie I'm fascinated by. I see the ambition. I see the scope. Yeah. I I respect a lot of it. But God, watching it, it just, I, I can't. It, it's just... There's the, the the degree of distance within those stories and in high rise just keeps me enough. It keeps me from like getting sucked in the way yeah. I, I eventually did when I kept watching Killist. I was like, no, this movie's fucking amazing. You know? Yeah. When you're yeah, I think when you're like reading the book, and again, not to belabor like no, it's why, okay. it's why good. a book works and why like a movie doesn't necessarily, but like you're watching you're like imagining these things playing out and you can fill in things like motivation mm. and stuff like that right. where it's like when most of the characters through at the at the halfway point of the movie fall into this weird trance where they're kind of like primitivized and like right. well you know one of the characters is it Luke Luke Evans, the, Luke uh, the, Evans. the documentary filmmaker. Yeah, it seems like he sniffs cocaine in a party sequence, and then he's never not on cocaine for the rest of the movie. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it's just like people fall into these like states of mania. Mm. And it's like, that's an interesting idea when you're reading it, because you're filling in the blanks. But when a movie has to convince you visually, which is, it, again, it's a beautiful movie. Like mm. these montages of chaos of like looting in the stores and stuff yeah. like that. Like it's beautifully hideous. Yeah. But, like, it still is just, like, his, Ben Wheatley's previous films, like, at the 90-minute mark, like, there's a there's a gift to that brevity. There's, like, a, a breathlessness to it that gets tedious after 90 minutes. Yeah. I don't know if there's a science to that where it's, like, after 90 minutes, it starts to wear out its welcome. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I remember the Coen brothers used to, like, they, their goal has always been to make movies less than two hours long, but they've started to creep more and more yeah, yeah. to the two-hour limit. Well, and they, they have some great saying about why they've always, it's some basic thing. Well, it, interesting, because, like, Barry Sonnenfeld was their cinematographer yes. on, like, Raising Arizona, at least. And Miller's Crossing. And, like, he refuses to make a movie longer than 90 minutes. Right, and that's a guy that's made... He, he wanted to make Ali, and he's like, I won't make it for longer than 90 minutes. <laughs> like, well, maybe not you, then. Yeah. We'll go with Michael Mann. Although, that's eh, maybe one of my least favorite Michael Mann movies, yeah. so eh, what do you know? Um, yeah, there, there's something, I think, lost in that I want Wheatley to expand, to, to get bigger budgets like yeah. this, and to play with longer run times. And it's, it's like it's appropriate for High Rise. Just hearing what you're saying about the book, 
I can just tell, yeah, that seems like the right move, but yet it's like, for me, it sort of damned the movie for someone that just wants a good movie and also just wants a good Ben Wheatley movie. Yeah. I came off I came off of it very disappointed. I also had a bit of that festival fatigue. thing where it's I yeah, fatigue. I I skipped I skipped another movie I really wanted to see just to slot in and make all my time to have, see High Rise. Have you seen that movie yet? I have not. Okay. It's a it's a Chinese film um called Mountains Made Apart. Uh friend of the show Morgan Ruff saw it this the, the day where I went and saw High Rise instead. He said it was pretty great. Okay. Um it'd be completely different experiences. Sure. Um but uh you know, maybe I was Maybe I resented that because the movie wasn't satisfying. Yeah. I don't, you know, it doesn't really matter because I can at least appreciate and uh, appreciate where the movie's coming from, what it's trying to do, and also like that it's it stands out in our current yeah. movie marketplace, and that's always a good thing for Absolutely. me. Absolutely, I think that like it's a it's a I th- it's a difficult sell. Mm. Like I was talking about this um, just this morning um, with a friend, mm. and uh, and. We were both like, yeah, I wouldn't recommend this movie to anybody. Right. Anybody who isn't already sort of pre, sort of pres- like they're they're not in this sort of like running of being interested already. Right. Like just pre inclined to liking it. Like, oh, you like Ben Wheatley movies? Oh, you like you know like you you've liked J.G. Ballard type dystopian novels before? Like, you should check it out. Yeah. Um, the score is amazing. Clint Mansell. Very good. Yes. You know, like uh, it's it. It's his most visually ambitious movie, so there's plenty to enjoy, but it's a tough sell. It is. And even for people who are, who are, like, inclined to like it, like, you have to sort of, like, you know, warn them ahead of time. Like, that's a mess, but there's still plenty to enjoy. I've been doing that at work. I mean, I would said we opened it on Friday at, at Cinema 21, and, um, again, like, I was didn't like the movie when I saw it, but I was like, you know what? I'm glad we're showing it, and it actually had a pretty good weekend for us, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but people would ask me, could, oftentimes at a movie theater, people just buy their ticket and be like, did you like the movie? Like, after the fact? They, sure. They've already bought their ticket. Yeah. They want to know if I liked it yeah. or the box office person. And I, I'll, I'm honest. I'm just like, no, not really. I actually think it's a huge mess. But I feel like it's the uh, equivalent of, like, if someone bought a ticket for Green Room, I like to warn them, hey, just so you know, this is an intensely violent movie. You might not be yeah, aware yeah. of that. You know, just to give people some, there's some knowledge to Brace be had. Brace them a little bit. Brace them for this movie, yeah. And um, someone was asking me yesterday if High Rise was extremely violent. And I didn't, I was like, not that I remember. I mean, it's it's violent. It's but, pretty violent. Yeah, and there is some actually grotesque uh, stuff with the Tom Hiddleston character where he's uh, like sawing a yeah. human skull in half. I forgot that moment. There's, there's plenty of <laughs> stuff actually like that. That's like, it's so on the nose in terms of like its symbolism mm. that there's almost like, it's almost smart that it was, it's taking place in the 1970s vision of the future because there's something kind of like quaint and dated about how on the nose the symbolism is of right. like he's peeling away the layers of the human head to see what's underneath right and like a dog goes missing in the building and so you can hear it in the walls so there's something wild in the right. walls of, there's a character whose last name is Wilder right I put all my energies into this time I'm its midwife so to speak Mm. It looks like the unconscious diagram of some kind of psychic event. Well, that's good. I'll use that. By all means. So you could say, not only am I the building's first road casualty, but I am the architect of my own accidents. What do you think of that? To me, that's kind of endearing, but I think might mm. be irksome to some people. Yeah, and honestly, you've maybe just articulated stuff that, that just sort of bugged me. But then again, I, I can't always pinpoint it with movies like this because 
I'm no stranger to heavy-handed movies. I mean, I liked The Tribe. It was in my top ten. That's a fucking heavy-handed movie. You know, it's oppressively bleak and heavy-handed as hell. It's a goth temper tantrum of a movie. (laughs) I guess that's more of what I was in the spirit or in the mood for. I, I don't know. But, yeah, it's... It, it helps me realize a little bit that that that's some of the stuff that maybe just bothers me um, with High Rise. But also, I, I feel like the performances on paper, I remember before seeing it, the cast sounded so um, exciting. Yeah. But I, I'm not sure that anybody really do, um, does anything, like, remarkable. And actually, some, some actors that I really like, like Elizabeth Moss, uh-huh. I kind of feel bad for her in this movie. I feel like she's not given much to do. Um, she's got significant screen time, but yeah. she's plain, you know, like you said, she's not a character. She just represents the a, house, idea. the housewife yeah. that's stuck in with her kids, and she's yeah. constantly pregnant the entire movie. You know, right. like, and you, it, it comes to be like her storyline and everybody else's are to me become a, they're like overly familiar. And when we've had movies like Fight Club, we've had other movies that deal and probably have been inspired from Ballard with what he was writing in the book in the first place. But like, it's like, I don't know. I felt like the movie didn't provide anything fresh enough as a movie for me to like, like really embrace it. But I could see why as a adaptation of the book, that's the audience for this movie. And it, it makes sense. But then again, there might be people that just come in clean and just find it crazy wild ride. I also didn't find the movie all that, like nuts. I don't know if I needed to be or not, but I feel like it gets talked up like this movie's fucking crazy. And I don't know, like you liked it more than me. Would you, I mean, do you think that, or am I, I I think that there's like a, there's an intellectualism to the movie Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. like probably burdens the, the sort of hysteria that would be possible if like it were a leaner film. Yeah. Like if it were 90 minutes and it just is about the sort of hysterical breakdown of everything as the power goes out and as people rip the entire building apart. Like it, it's it's got like a sort of patient trudge mm-hmm, quality mm-hmm. to it's it. It's a good way to put it. And then like there are sequences in it. There's like montages mm-hmm. where like a door's getting sort of ripped open and like people are running down the halls and there's sort of like a flash ne- flashlight sort of freneticism to like what's happening and like those are some of the sequences that I'm talking about being like beautifully hideous. Mm-hmm. But like that that has an energy to it that are just rare bursts, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it comes to life every now and again. And it's it's, it's like, it's, it's just a strange example. I mean, a filmmaker I love, it's a movie that accomplishes what I think they set out to do. Yeah. But yet... But it doesn't necessarily work. You yeah, know, like, as a movie movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting case. Yeah, it's, a, it's, again, a lot to appreciate, but a lot to pick apart as well. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, Ben Wheatley's got another movie that might even come out this year. Free Fire. Which to me sounds like, let's go back to basics, let's make another tight movie, and it's going to be like a gunfight movie for 90 minutes. Produced by Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. And the poster I've seen, whether it's official or not, it has a great sort of, you know, gun imagery on it. Uh, Reminded me of like an updated Mean Streets cover. I I was very excited about that. Yeah, Departed had a sort of gun aesthetic too on the cover. So, yes, the Scorsese connection there as a as a sort of shepherd executive producer on that is, is exciting, but also, um, you know, I'm glad that Wheatley is, he's a, he's always been a, he makes films fast. Yeah. He makes genre movies like Woody Allen makes his little, you know, people talking on the street movies, you Uh know, like he, he really like churns them out. But, uh, so yeah, very excited to see what's next, but, uh, for, you know, for me, I hope it's, I hope it's a better movie. You might differ. You do differ. Did you read the leaflet? Yes, I did. Very good. 
Now, the fact that you'll turn into an animal if you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here is not something that should upset you or get you down. Now, have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. Why a lobster? Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Are blue-blooded like aristocrats. I also like the sea very much. A lobster is an excellent choice. All right, so uh, I think the one that we might, you know, potentially could end up talking a lot longer about, a movie we both agree on, um, as you had said, and is very funny, is is this movie The Lobster. We love this filmmaker. Yeah, Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah, he he's like, I don't know how you describe his his first film, Dogville, not Dogville, it's Dog Tooth. It's not it's not even his first film, but it's like his third. Okay. Third, I think his first kind of like break into sort of. Uh, it's how we all heard about worldwide him. attention, basically. Absolutely. So Dogtooth and then Alps. There's something that's like that's got like a stark, realistic quality to it, but there's something heightened about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Lobster is like a, a departure from that, but except for like there's an emotional stark realism going on in mm. terms of like there's something very ordinary about all of these weird fucking things that are going on in the <laughs> film and it's like it's set up in the first sequence like hideously and hideous is my word for it's the, the day. word of the day Pee-wee's playhouse word of the day and hilariously there's a woman driving in sort of drizzly rain yeah she parks her car gets out and shoots a donkey and the shot of her shooting the donkey is from inside the car where the like the back and forth rhythm yeah. of the windshield wipers is like there's something so banal mm. and rhythmic about it yes. that even if something like frightening and absurd is going on you see it through the lens of it being ordinary yeah. of it being like boring and rhythmic yeah. and so like that sets up pretty like beautifully and succinctly the rest of the film because yeah. like this is a film where it's almost like a police state environment where people are paired up with each other if you're not paired up you're sent to this resort essentially <laughs> where you can attempt to get paired up if you know, not if you fail within a certain window of time 45 days why that number <laughs> yeah who doesn't knows? matter <laughs> you will get turned into an animal of your choosing mm. so we have the the main character of the film played by Colin Farrell who shows up with a dog that you find out to be his brother who's been turned into an animal. And his brother adorably chose Colin Farrell to be his new life mate. Like, there's an element to this movie where if you are turned into an animal, you still have the chance oh. to find a mate. It's, it's something I picked up on the second time I saw yeah, it. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, the brother chose his brother to be with yeah. as his dog. I, it's like... It's, there's these little windows of like human yeah, there's beautifulness. A, there's to a it? sweetness to the movie and, yeah. an, and an ache in that sense. That's like it's so it's such a tricky high wire act of the tone that we're talking about. Like mm. some movies not able to pull off where it's bleak, but there's a humanity to it. And like that's what this movie like. There, there's ideas at work that I think that's what struck me about like how it felt literary. Yeah, yeah. Like, watching the movie the first time at AFI Fest, I was like, this feels like a book, and this is somehow the, like, the miracle adaptation that makes these absurd ideas that, like, when you're reading it in book form, the onus is kind of on you to make it make sense. Right. I mean, a lot of it's on the writing as well and the prose and it being convincing enough, but, like, you still 
or at a distance from it enough mm. that you you can't imagine that oh, th- this is the world that's sort of like in a in a Donald Bartle me sort of way like Ooh, he's, a, he's a magic realist writer it's a uh, deep he's, cuts he's really good yeah <laughs> but he, it reminded me of those books that it's just like okay I will accept like what this book is telling me right but when it has to be con- it has to convince you visually it gets trickier it does because you're watching actual people in these weird worlds mm. have to elicit genuine emotion from you and the audience and from themselves and from each other yeah and to make it like to make the absurdism not overtake it to where you you're not able to connect with it yeah and like it like it pulls it off it, it, the movie the whole movie really is a, a like a kind of amazing high wire act because there is this brilliant premise that you just came up bizarre and actually yeah. 100% original no one has actually ever come up with yeah. a story like this that's the other thing i think we have to really underline with Yorgos Lanthimos um and i have to think of my boss at cinema 21 he got to see the movie before he booked it right. and he came to work after seeing it, he's like that guy's from another fucking planet like what's the deal with that guy and it's like yeah that's kind of like he's on another level yeah, because um, you, Lobster is this sort of like an evolution from what he's been doing in the previous two films. But I really do feel in the way that I felt like Ben Wheatley was building up to High Rise. I see the sort of continuation. Yeah, because Dogtooth and Alps, uh, two films we have talked about on the podcast um, uh, before, they 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 also create these worlds that are, they look like our mundane reality. Yeah. He doesn't put spaceships in there. He doesn't right. have doors that go zoom and up and down. You know, he doesn't no. add anything new. No, it's banal and it's, there's an ordinariness to but it. But it's left of center. There's something not only off, but then you come to realize, oh, the concept of this movie is what creates a whole new, a whole its own world. Yeah. And I definitely am uh, fond of movies that can create their own world um, uh, in, in that way. It's so striking, so original. But I feel like, yeah, he's been building up to that with The Lobster, and it's it's amazing that he can come up with this concept. It It's a movie that itself is about two hours long, too. Yeah. Yet, I, I worried the first time I was seeing it, I was like, this is great. Where's this going to go, right? Like, you, right. you might think that about all of his movies. Like, where's this going? Yeah. I'm, I'm catching up. I understand what's happening. He also has a faith in the audience to just pick up what's going on yeah. in a way that's really refreshing. But... I, I, I almost worried, and then he does this brilliant thing where, um, it pretty like ballsy, I would say, where he, halfway through, it's a movie of two halves. Like yeah. you get you get the half in the hotel, this like you know big yeah. building where everybody has to go, and then we're not going to give away buildings. too much. They're big, in, they're in a, there yeah. you go, like high rise as well. Another connective, um, also voiceover occasionally used. Mm-hmm. We uh, we should just get to it, but the voiceover in the lobster is so well used Um, and uh, we'll get to that but it's a movie of two halves and when he goes to that when the movie it literally like it looks completely different in the second half than the first half you're in a a a natural environment in the second half but yet that's what makes the movie like a step better than even the great premise it's one thing to come up with a really great premise and all the actors seem game and they're on board I'm laughing for you know I'm loving where this movie's going there's a danger of like, don't take that away from me, but right. I feel like the movie had to go somewhere else. Yeah. And what it became for me, um, and I think it's such a strong example of, uh, by the time it all wraps up and you get this divided movie, is like, it's a movie about extremism. Yeah. And I love that its viewpoint essentially is like, for one, people need to kind of like, get, experience all the points of view that might be out there, or as many as you can in life, but really it's up to you to decide how to live in the middle. 
Yeah. Or if you can exist in the middle, or if you want to be in one extreme, you need to be the one that decides that. Yeah. But I think that's a really powerful statement this day, these days, you know, especially with, fuck, I mean, just look at the political situation going on right yeah, now. Yeah, there just, needs to be nuance. There needs to be a, a sort of gathered understanding. In a like, world utterly lacking in nuance right now. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty goddamn refreshing to see a movie that's this extremist in its sort of uh, absurdity, you know, the absurd premise but yet so relatable and it's like why don't we just all try to chill out a little bit i think did you do you when we were initially talking about it like months ago when we both had seen it did you use fight club as an example of like i think i did that's yeah a, that's a sort of meditation on extremism as well uh, yeah that where like you you de- like you decimate your life and then out of that comes you know high rises arguably about extremism as well yeah no you, there's no doubt yeah the the movies are really fucking similar man this is kind <laughs> yeah. of fun to like one one sequence that like there's there's two like beautiful usages of uh I noticed it the second time was like the slow motion sequence where like mm. a, another aspect of living in the Oh, the resort is, so yeah. is that they have to hunt single people through the woods with, the, and gather them like by tranquilizing the them. loners who have kind of left and yeah. they're they've sort of rejected that yeah so they're just like living in the woods and yeah they're, yeah they're, so they're being hunted by the people at the resort <clears throat> and and they you know run through the woods in slow motion and these like ponchos with tranquilizer guns so great. and so that slow motion is used again <clears throat> when the now that Colin Farrell is a loner yep they have to infiltrate the city pretending they're a couple and they're walking through a supermarket or like a target type store yeah. in slow motion. So yeah. these two like hunting and shopping are kind of equated with each other, mm. which is done in high rise as is. well. God damn. Where they run into the supermarket as it's gone, like as it's been blacked out and he's like, right. we're hunting and gathering. Right. We're saying how uh, similar the movies are, but yet for me, this is like the one where the cast, everybody in the lobster is like just doing great work. Yeah. Like, I kind of had forgotten how um, Rachel, how great of an actress Rachel Vice is, because yeah. it's almost like I haven't seen enough of the movies she's been in yeah. lately. But um, I mean, this is a, she won an Oscar ten some years ago for the Constant Gardener. I mean, like she's great, and it's like uh, it's just refreshing to be like, God damn, like where's Rachel Vice been? And she's perfect in this movie. And yeah. her um, her voiceover is the thing I was referencing earlier that I just think is so. So, like, when the movie starts, her voice, she's not a character in the first half, or at least not that you know of. But she's giving the voiceover, and she's doing that thing that they tell you not to do in Screenwriting 101. Uh, Who's the guy in Adaptation that's, like, that uh, Robert... uh, Yeah, is it Robert McKee? Robert McKee. It's, based on him, basically. Exactly. The screenwriting guru, a guy like Robert McKee would tell you, don't do voice... I mean, that's a scene in Adaptation. If you're cheating, if voiceover... And Yorgos Lanthimos and his screenwriter, they... They're doing that to almost sort of goad those reactions, I think, because yeah. right away she starts literally saying the things that you're watching Colin yeah. Farrell do. But what it does is it adds this heightened level of um, humor to it. It's sort yeah. of it adds to the absurdity. But I do remember thinking like, uh, like why is he doing that? Like I, I, it stuck. It just sticks with me. And then you um, find out. Then you find out, and it's one of those things where it's like, um, for one, always just let a film. It's a good lesson. Let a film unfold without being like, yeah. I need to know. I need to know. You know. The reveal of how the voiceover's been weaved into the movie and when it cuts off is like they had a plan. They didn't just lazily need voiceover. It yeah. was, and it's just another like brilliant aspect of 
of the screenplay, which I think is one of the strongest yeah. elements of this movie. Well, it's it's good that you brought up adaptation too, because mm. this does have like a weird Charlie Kaufman like feel to it. Cause yeah, like, yeah. Being John Malkovich had this insane pitch, mm-hmm. the same way the Lobster does, where it's like got this absurdist angle where you're like, I have to see, and that's kind of become the sort of tendency of a lot of blacklist accepted scripts. Is like. Yeah. How could this movie ever exist? Right. I, I mentioned the sort of like from the perspective of Michael Jackson's monkey movie that, right. that like got high up on the blacklist. Yeah, that's now actually getting made. Of course, but um, <laughs> but so like it's like how what they they can enter John Malkovich's mind like this movie is crazy. It could never get made. Like what they get turned into an animal of their choosing if they don't like find a mate. That and so like there is a like a high wire act of like making this absurd pitch emotionally like investing and like, and, and pay off in this way. And Mm -hmm. I I think like that's, that's, that's the amazing trick about this movie is how, how sort of like bleakly hilarious it is and then how emotionally affecting it, it it can become. It is like a a kind of quietly devastating movie the way all of his movies have been Mm -hmm. so far. Have you thought about what animals you want to be if you don't make it? A lobster. I'm going to be a parrot if I don't make it. Why don't you become parrots too? And then we'll all be together. You're a complete idiot picking one of the few animals that can talk when you have a speech impediment. You'll lisp, even as an animal. As for you, they'll catch you and put you in a pot of boiling water until you die. And then they'll crack open your claws with a tool, like pliers, and they'll suck out what little flesh you have with their mouths. You're pathetic, both of you. I'm not going to be turned into some animal. I'll come and visit you, though, with my partner, when we're walking together in some park or when we're swimming in the sea or when we're on one of our trips. Uh, the writer for the playlist who wrote the review at Cannes last year, Ollie Littleton, um, loved it. He he lives in London, and he so the film was released last year, so okay. it was his favorite film of last year. Yeah, and he he compared it to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind yeah. only in so much Charlie Kaufman, of course, but yeah. only in so much as like it's another movie. It's like it's not just a love story; it's like about love. Like yeah. that's really what it's examining, and they. They both decon in their own ways the movies, but they deconstruct that and play with it. And in their in the way uh, it's done in the lobster so well. Like okay, there's an element of the lobster as well where to you and I, it, uh, I feel like we're you know we have our own opinions, but you and I generally kind of have similar sort of point of view of just like I don't know, just general point of view. Like I yeah. feel like we're pretty similar on a lot of things. Sure. Political, social, whatever you want to call it. I think we generally kind of see eye to eye on things. Yeah, Trump. <laughs> naturally right it's drump for me that's, that's the only way um but this um there's an element of this movie that you could argue maybe is preaching to the converted to us sure. right because this movie is uh, i'm cu- what i'm saying is i'm curious like uh if this movie does okay in theaters and people see it you does know it speak to like the casual moviegoer and will they not only reject it will they be like hurt by this movie will some i think there's but 
yet I think the movie gets past that in that it's 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 not mean spirited. But I think some people are gonna a lot of people could watch this movie and think this movie's making fun of me. You know, it's making yeah, fun of me. If they bo- even get that far, they might just be alienated sure. by like the the tone of the movie. Right. They're like, what? Huh? Yeah. yeah exactly. The, His like, dog is his brother. Like you have to accept what the movie is. Tell yeah. yeah. And if you don't, yeah. Like, which yeah. which does it does it with like a kind of like shrugging, you know, kind of like everything's sort of accepted as normal. Yeah. He's like, this, my dog, it's my brother. It's, yeah. yeah, it's so straightforward, yeah. In this in this sort of like gloriously deadpan way. It's so good. I, he reminds me of Stanley Kubrick and how he can get his cast to all sort of act in a certain way. Yeah. But yet they all feel different. They're all sort of reciting their lines, their dialogue yeah. in this sort of, and I felt that way more so um, uh, with his last movie, Elps, as well, felt very Kubrickian in the way that everybody just had this sort of deadpan. Right. There's a, there's like a cold kind of museum detachment. Right. But like, he's able to get everyone seemingly on the same page mm. with this sort of heightened, ridiculous premise, but they all in it even though they're on the same page, they all have their own kind of nuanced, fleshed out characters. John C. Riley is amazing in this oh, movie. Yeah. And well, and all the actors, all the characters are working against a sort of label that they're all given. Like if yeah. you look at the uh, credits, like John C. Riley is described as the Lisp. lisping man. Yeah. It's another great element of the movie is everybody's whittled down to this one thing that Quirk sort of and tick. Yeah. Exactly. And then in a brilliant move, that's how everybody tries to pair up. Yeah. So like the uh, Ben Wishaw character pretends he smashes his head in a you know Yorgos Lanthimos loves head smashing by of the course. way he just loves it um, smashes his head to create nosebleeds so he can you know yeah. uh, connect with this younger woman that everybody kind of desires in the yeah. hotel um, and I love that's the sort of stuff where I'm like that's something that we culturally a lot of people do they'll be like oh you like uh, you like 80s movies Joe I got the girl for you you know it's like is that supposed to solve everything you know like and I guess what I'm saying is I wonder if that's what people will realize as they're watching like oh my god that's like what if someone's like 10 years deep into a marriage watches this movie I just think this movie has the power to sort of make someone realize like I've made a huge mistake right but that's that's also it's brilliance I don't know it's a power but I, I think the people that will like the movie will speak to probably have done enough self-investigative work that they're they're open to it. Sure. I think the people that will immediately be put off by it probably like things kept at a surface level and won't investigate past the, it's weird, like sort of sense of it. It's a good point. Yeah. I just, I almost, I guess the reason I wonder and I bring it up is like, I kind of want to see that reaction in some circles, but I, I guess we just don't live in this movie world, we're like, you brought, being John Malkovich, to me, I um, pitched this to my boss at the theater to get The Lobster months ago. I was like, you have to get it whenever it comes out. And to me, I was like, this would, this to me, if it were 1999, would be, would cross over in the way that being John Malkovich did. Yeah. Where it's not that that was, that movie as an independent, weird little movie made good box office in yeah. 1999. And we just don't live in that era no, anymore. No, I, I mean, know? that was still, we were kind of at the tail end of that sort of like indie kind of home run from yep. that started in like, its it seeds were in the early 90s. I think it reached this like peak in the mid 90s with, with like, Miramax. Yeah, and like yeah. Fargo and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. But like in the in the late 90s that that it had been normalized. So you had that amazing fall of like Fight Club was not an independent film or an art house movie. Nope. But it it had that quality. It did. And it came out the same month as being John Malkovich. It's fucking incredible, yeah. And like yeah, I don't know. I think there's a push to make this like I think A24 has the resources mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which like they they luckily you know got 
their hands on the movie because it fell into limbo mm-hmm. when the the original distributor went under. Yeah, Alchemy. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, rest in peace, alchemy. Yeah, it's it's but, sad when that happens, but yeah. But H four has the resources that they're like taking these movies that they know are like wildly unconventional, right? That are that are like that are challenging to a mainstream checked out audience. But I think they're they've got the resources to sort of throw it into that arena. Yep. Like this movie was like Colin Farrell was on today promoting this movie. Whoa. Yeah, he was on the morning talk show okay. promoting The Lobster. So on I network think, TV. Yeah, so I think that there's like, they're like, well, let's see. Let's like, see what yeah, happens, let's, yeah. Yeah, why not? Let's like, go for it, yeah. Let, let, let's give the audience the benefit of the doubt, which yeah. like, heart-achingly, I'm like, I don't know if they're there for it. Right. But like, I want you to be right, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I Like, I would love for, I saw it with a hugely packed audience. Nice roaring like the entire time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was at like a pretty dark period where I was I was heartbroken when I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a rough time and this was probably the first movie I saw post like a, a pretty troublesome breakup. Mm-hmm. And it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. And like every other depressing movie I saw at that festival was not what I needed. <laughs> but like this high wire act of tone like is it perfectly assesses a, a cynic's kind of wake up to like what's still possible in the world. Yeah, that's pretty beautiful, man. I remember you texting me after seeing you're like you said you're like it's exactly what I needed. Like yeah. God, I needed that more than I could have even realized. And that's the that's that's a that's just the it really is a trick that he pulls off with this movie. The cast that Lanthimos everybody did with this movie is, um, like yeah, there's I don't know there's like. I watched Dogtooth the other day. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend hadn't seen it. I was like, good time to watch it. Um, yeah. and, and still, fucking brilliant movie. But it's like, that movie f- could, you could um, very easily lump it in with a certain art house, rigorous aesthetic. Well, um, you know, like. He's got like the sort of like stark, realistic. Yes. Kind of vibe that Dogtooth has. Mm-hmm. Like, it's got like a Henneke. It does. Sort, sort of feel to it. Mm-hmm. And he, like, and they're both sort of in the sort of realm of trying to resensitize people to stuff. Yeah. Like Henneke through brutality a lot of times. And there's some brutality in like a lot of um, Lathemos, is that how you pronounce yep. his last name? Yep. And, yep. and a lot of his work. There like is. There, there's like absolute brutality, emotional I kind of for- brutality. I forgot how violent Dogtooth really is. Yeah. Like, and the violence is like beautiful in this weird way, but it's yeah. like fucking intense. It's, yeah. yeah, eruptive in this way that like jolts mm-hmm. you awake. Same way with like Henneke will like, he'll startle you into like sort of feeling again. Yeah. And like, and with a movie that's examining love, like it's, it's, it's a really like, it's a really sort of brutal and beautiful experience. It is. And, you know, you had referenced uh, kind of when we started talking about the lobster, the the wonderful open opening scene. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people that I talked to uh, after my first viewing got really hung up on, like, what does that have to do with the movie? You know, like, w- w- how does that connect? They, they were trying to guess if the donkey was a character that we had met. 
and uh, I asked, uh, I had, I interviewed Yorgos just yeah. last week, so it'll be coming on the on the playlist podcast feed soon. And he, I asked him directly. I just was like, "What's up with the opening scene? Like, yeah. Should we should we be connecting to that?" And he just laughed and he's like, "No, you just need to be more open minded to it." He just probably has been asked it a lot, and he's like, "It's just it's you picked it up perfectly. It is a setup to the world. Yeah, no more, no less. It's just a prologue, right? And it doesn't need to connect to anything. And I think that's another element that if this movie crosses over even a little bit if some people that would never see a movie like this go and do it like they will have experienced a movie that not everything the the anti-marvel machine of like everything has to be set up and paid off even if it doesn't really feel like it it's just it's been there so it's almost like you look at all the marvel movies and almost like boringly scientific you can go back and be like well they set that up in iron man 2 and then it's it's like great okay bloodless business feel to it where you're like like there's there's nothing at like stake there's no risk there's no like grit to it we don't feel it yeah and he, th- that's not the case here. It's like, it, no. it, this movie will be good for people that are only going to Marvel movies or only going to comic book movies, whatever. It, it would be, it's like one of those art house movies that you're like, this is one that can, this is a movie that can convert people to yeah. see the possibilities of mo- other kinds of movies as opposed to alienated people, which I think is what a lot of foreign movies will do or scare people off they, yeah, before yeah. they even want to try. Or, it's like slow and kind of like, yeah. and, and mean. But there's this inherent like entertainment value in Yorgos Lanthimos' work, but he's so scathing. Um, and again, you know, having like I said, watched Dogtooth. Dogtooth is a much, um, it, it's probably a meaner movie. Yeah. But it's like he's evolved, and it's almost like you're seeing him mature with the lobster into this point where he can give you something actually kind of hopeful, but disturbingly hopeful. Like the last shot of this movie might be one of the most, the way I take it, I think it's one of the most romantic gestures yeah, I've seen course. in a movie in a long time. Yeah. And it's frightening. Frightening. You're sitting yeah. there and you're just imagining. You're cringing. Oh God. And but it, it's also like, there's a selflessness to the, like the, the, the what's about to be cringe inducing and revolting. Yeah. That you're just like, so it's this dynamic experience where you're like, mm-hmm. you're you're in like these two different directions. Like we were talking about with how like um, Mary Heron did with like American Psycho where she would lull you with comedy right. and then like show you what you were laughing at and like make you recoil and like, and so it's like these, these things you're recoiling from and opening up to and it's just like this, this complicated experience. Yeah. Which that's what fucking life is. Yeah. It's complicated. It's not simplified. There's nuance. And so like, yeah, like I, I love that he's going in this direction that's challenging, but this is easily his most accessible movie. Definitely. Start to finish. And like, not just because it's in the English language, but that's going to help. And it has people like Colin Farrell yeah. and John C. Riley in it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like he, I think he's able, like this cast recognizes like, the vision of this filmmaker and that's why they're on board with something that's like as like you have to trust a filmmaker with a concept this absurd you do yeah and there's no doubt like I'm not surprised to hear that Colin Farrell has signed on to do one of his next movies that's great yeah and it's he's doing right now Yorgos Lanthimos is working on two English language movies one's gonna be like something completely different sounding like a period piece adaptation of a book yeah um, and then this next one called The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is going to be like a revenge thriller. Okay. We'll see what that looks like hey, from his revenge. lens. Revenge is really becoming a very big thing for a lot of movies. I mean, it's like, it's always been there in cinema. But well, I think like it, 
maybe in one of our first like episodes, we just talked about I saw the devil being this sort of like stake in the heart of like, like the revenge. We've peaked. We yeah. can only go down now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's like it's this never ending cycle that mm. you can't escape. And it's like that I saw the devil does that really well. But if there's anybody that's up to the task of sort of like re energizing the revenge sort of thriller, it's him. Definitely. And then like Colin Farrell being in it, obviously he trusts him and uh, clearly, the the cast did in this movie. It's it's a um, it's a pretty incredible movie. Like yeah. I, it's it's maybe foolish to try to throw out big words. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I think this might turn out to be one of the great like master films. You know that yeah. you look back on, and I think it's always gonna like it's just gonna age so well. You know, I don't know. Well, I think that like what's what's sort of like heartbreaking about like this year is that like it. It almost feels like a 1999, the fall of 99, where there's all these some good great, stuff. like, yeah, there's all these, there's these great genre movies or yeah. these great complicated art movies. And, like, I just worry about the audience. Yeah. And, like, you know, it's, it's not the fault of the movies this year, where it's like that's, you know, people have been arguing films have been in decline. It's like, oh, like, the, like when people say, like, cinema's dead, like, no, the audience is dead. Yeah. 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 Sad reality, but yeah. if you're listening to us, you're we can alive. make it. Yeah, you're alive. You can. We can make a difference. We can go see movies like The Lobster. Um, well put, sir. Would you like to dance? All right, well, before we close up this episode, um, I'm not even sure what number it is. doesn't matter. I'm not going to focus on it. hundred and something. Yeah, it's definitely, it's up there in the hundreds. Uh, um, we need to introduce uh, our next edition of Hold Up. And it's your choice because I... What did I choose in the last episode? What, Robin Hood. Ooh, you know, washed it right out of my memory. Prince of Persia. <laughs> that um, was our last one. Um, but here, uh, you're going to announce what we'll be talking about on the next episode. Yep. Hold Up is a segment where we take something that is either, like, uh, beloved from our past that is either critically maligned, that we have a special place in our heart, and we use a second viewing of it with, you know... Eric as my counterpoint to investigate why I love something that may have been hated either by the public or critics, mm -hmm. but it's evolved since then. And this it's kind of just been about like, why do we love the stuff that we love? Even if it wasn't critically maligned or panned by audiences. Right. So, um, this time it is going to fall in with a kind of Shane black centric episode with, gonna the, be good, yeah. with the nice guys coming out next week. Um, it's lethal weapon. Two. Mm. So as a sequel, sequels are, you know, sometimes dicey propositions, but oh, this yeah. is argued as like a movie that may be superior to its predecessor. Ooh. And so this is a movie that I like I have loved and like I'm willing to take a look at and maybe argue like, is it stronger than the first one? Nice. What makes a sequel what makes 
what makes it impossible for a sequel to be better than the original sometimes? Right. In, like, in the sort of mind of any, like, people will always dismiss, like, the sequel's always worse, right? Like, yeah. that sort of thinking. What creates that level of thinking? Yeah. But, like, you could argue that, you know, Godfather 2, better than Godfather. I agree. Aliens. I would argue that Aliens is better than Alien. It's a tough call. I mean, Aliens they're both is fucking a perfect great. movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, that's what we're going to do with the next episode. I like Terminator 2 better. That's what yeah, people say that. I just I think I, it's a more flawed movie. Like the first one is so like tight and like yeah. it, it it really is great at what it sets out to do yeah. with its minimal, but I just T2 like gets my heart, you know. Yeah. Like, I think that's when a lot of people like came to the the sort of like world of the Terminator was part 2. I, you definitely. Like, they had seen Terminator on video. They're like, "Yeah, I liked it." Yep. But then like they experienced like the hugeness cuz that movie was a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And Lethal Weapon 2 was a bigger box office like experience than Lethal Weapon 1, okay, which yeah. was huge in right. its own way. Right, right. And I think discussing the movie, there will be a trajectory set because the movie was essentially taken away from Shane Black, rewritten, uh, yes. and that put him into a dark space where he came up with The Last Boy Scout. Ooh, okay. A yeah. movie you've brought up, not on a hold-up segment. It was but Love I, It or Hate It. Love It or Hate It, of course. Yeah. I knew right away it was too easy that, that you loved that movie. <laughs> um, well, yeah, great. I'm looking really, I'm really looking forward. I'm going to try to watch any other Shane Black stuff I can before we record because I have some catching up to do but you know it's been a long time that I've seen since I've seen a lot of his work yeah Um, I still really like just I mean we'll get into it but I love his performance in Predator like he just pops up in that movie but he he gives himself all these great lines or the script does whatever it is but I think there's like a mythology that he was on set because he was like he had two movies in 87 the year Mm -hmm. that like Predator came out but like his I think Lethal Weapon was being made right and so they're like he was a hot property, right? Yeah, he was one of those screen like before Joe Esterhaus. He was yeah. like the high paid screenwriter. Yeah. yeah, and he was young. He was like in his mid twenties. Yeah, he's, he he looks like a baby faced dude in Predator. Yeah, for sure. So I mean. like I think they had him on set <clears throat> in case they needed any script doctoring, but yeah. nothing ever needed it because that's a fucking lean script. McTiernan knows what he's doing. He did in those days, man. Yeah. yeah. So good. All right. Well, uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, Lethal Weapon 2. We're going to go watch it right now when we're done recording. We're going to go enjoy it in a theater, um, and that'll be a blast. But, um, yeah, so, you know, check it out yourself if you want before we come back. It's probably going to be less than a week before we come back with that uh, Shane Black episode. I still need to see the nice guys. You can say you're a fan. I know you've seen it already. Yeah. Yeah. Have I said that I was a fan? You you told me. You told me you liked it. Yeah. You said you're worried about the movie. Yeah. Am I misreading? Maybe you didn't well, see it. Well, it falls exactly with our, our discussion of, like, the audience is dead. Because it's like, you can see uh, Warner Brothers, like, they're confident that the movie's good. Right. And, like, that's that's the other heartbreaking thing it's is that these, these studios are confident that, like, Midnight Special's good. Same studio. Yeah. Warner Brothers. And it's like, that's, they, they you can see the panic of them, like, pulling you know, like, strings to try to, like, get in, like, they don't know if the audience is there for this movie. And it's right. a, like, perfectly fun, like, insanely well-acted movie. And it was just like, that was once enough. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm I'm really good. I missed the press screening for it, but I'll uh, I'll be seeing it this weekend, so I'm very excited to catch Nice Guys. Cool. I feel like it might be our summer movie. One of, one yeah. of those important yeah, one ones of for us. Yeah. There's, there's other stuff coming.
All right. Well, with that, why don't we uh, wrap up this, uh, like I said, I don't know the number of this episode of Adjust Your Tracking, but it's a hundred and something. Dub it in later. There you go. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe I'll just leave it rough. Um, you can find all our episodes now on the, all the new ones on theplaylist.net. There's a podcast tab there with all the shows that we have up on the site so far. Of course, we're, you can find, um, if you just want to get all the shows automatically, you can go to um, the Playlist Podcast iTunes feed. We're putting all Adjust Your Tracking episodes there, and they live there first. And then eventually I might put it on the AYT, the original AYT iTunes feed. But get it first at the playlist. And... Um, uh, what else? Well, it's a new website at the playlist. I should reiterate again that we've moved in the last couple of weeks, so it's uh, we're we're now an independent site, and it is theplaylist.net. So don't forget to go there and check out the other stuff going on. There's a lot of good can film festival coverage going on right now. Um, I'm working on another podcast with some of our writers to uh, you know to talk about that. I always get excited about this festival, and yep. you know the Lobster premiered there last year. So you know movies that we care about. A lot of Ben Wheatley movies have played at yep. Cannes. You good know, company. it's it's important. Exactly. Um, very exciting. Um, the new Refn movie is going to debut uh-huh. soon. I think Thursday, Neon Demon. I'm, uh, I'm a pretty, I mean, surprise, surprise. I'm excited for that one. Yep. It looks good. Do you think the trailer looks all right? It looks, it looks all right. Okay. I feel a little hesitancy. All right. But you know, I'm the fanboy. That's, that's the way it's going to be. Um, I think it looks kind of rad. Uh, it looks like a Refn movie. Okay. We sure. can say that. Yeah. Um, lastly, do you notice he goes with NWR now as a credit? No. He's, he's just abbreviating now. He's adorable. He's adorably uh, into himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's capital P pretentious. Just so much, but it, it, I just, it's charming for some reason. So, yeah, uh, so we'll be, you know, stuff like that is coming up on the podcast feed as well. But, um, you know, we will be coming back with our nice guy, Shane Black, uh, chat soon. Um, what else? You can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Where Facebook. We, there's we Facebook. Twitter at adjustyourtrack. That's right. That's right. We're trying to put stuff out there while we're not doing shows. Keep you interested. And, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll thank you if you check those things out. We, we need to thank super producer Drew Walner. He's been continuing the archiving of our older episodes. That's true. So, yeah, thank you, Drew. You're doing doing good work there, as usual. And um, soon we'll hopefully be able to point listeners to older episodes like that if you want to find them, if you're interested. True. You could find that episode where we talked about Kill List or Ben Wheatley or or Dogtooth or, you know, so on and so forth. So why don't we wrap it up there? And if you do that, we'd be very thankful, but uh, not as thankful as I am to sit in the same room with you, Joe. Once again, thanks, Eric. <laughs>